You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and I am joined today with Bethany Bingham from the Hogle Zoo in Salt Lake City. Hello, Bethany. Hi, how are you, Chris? Doing awesome. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Bethany is, is the president of the American Association of Zookeepers, and our friend Jim Winepress told me I had to interview Bethany, and I absolutely agree, because I think this one's going to be great, because it's coming coming at you at a different angle more about the uh, the people that take care of animals and their mission and things like that. So it's going to be a really great conversation. So I'm really excited. Thank you, Bethany, again. Absolutely. So, you know, I I know you're working at the Hogle Zoo now, but if you can just kind of give us, I always like to ask a, a brief background, you know, where you grew up, where, well, obviously you're, you're currently living somewhere in Utah, right? So, uh, but and then what got you, <laughs> yeah, what got you involved in uh, taking care of these animals, taking care of animals? Uh, well, I sort of, I, I'm an Air Force brat, so, um, that'll tell you that I, I moved around a little bit when I was younger. Um, but I, I spent a lot of time, I went to, um, high school and middle school in, uh, Western New York. And then I went to college in Michigan, which is where my family is originally from. And then, uh, when I graduated from Michigan State, go Spartans, um, I, uh, I have to get that in when I write. <laughs> you that. and Angie. Um, Angie too. Angie's a, she's a Michigan State alum. She always like, go green. <laughs> oh. Oh, yay, go green. I love that. Okay. Um, and then, um, I took a job. The, the first, uh, job that was available at a zoo was in Salt Lake City. So that was a super brief, uh, synopsis. Um, basically growing up, so like I said, my, my family's from Michigan. Um, my mom lived in, uh, she grew up in the Detroit area. And so you could never, you know, she always wanted pets, but you know, obviously you couldn't have large animals, um, in that situation. So, uh, when my parents, my dad was, uh, stationed at a base out in California, um, my mom got her first horse, which is all she, what, what she had always wanted. And, um, when she got her first horse, I also got my first pony, a rather large pony. Um, but she sort of, you know, fostered that um, animal instinct. And, you know, we had animals in the house. You know, we had dogs and cats in the house, um, which was fantastic. And uh, so you learn a sense of responsibility with that growing up. Um, but then the horses uh, were a big deal for both of us. And uh, when she saw that it was going to become a passion of mine, um, it sort of turned into me and the horses. And then when we moved to um, Western New York, I started showing competitively. Um, I also was in 4-H, um, which is a great program. Um, I did uh, I dabbled a little bit in dairy goats and some of the other farm animals at that point. Again, we didn't have a farm ourselves. You know, my horse was boarded at a facility away from our house. Um, but that was kind of how it started. And then my mom's dad, so my grandfather on my mom's side, um, he was always involved with zoos. He was actually on the board of director for the Detroit Zoo. Oh, wow. And okay. Yeah. And uh, so he kind of and my mom had worked at the Detroit Zoo growing up as well. So zoos kind of always had a sort of a thread in my life. Um, and that is probably, I think, the link um, to where it started. I have a handful of people, probably five or six people that have been pretty significant influence in my um, career, if you will, my zoo career and my animal um, 
passion. And um, that's probably one of them. So that's where, where it got started. And there's more background um, there. But what I did, um, I have a degree in animal science from Michigan State, uh, a bachelor's. And um, of course, after I graduated from Michigan State, they came up with a zoo and aquarium science program, don't you know? Um, <laughs> so I missed out on that, but that's okay. Um, cause farm animal made sense with all my, my horses, uh, background. And then, so I basically got some really good advice, um, from someone, which is a, another unique zoo story. If you, if you want me to share, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. But, yeah. Absolutely. Um, got, we got plenty of time. Okay. So I'll back up a little bit. So my yeah, yeah, grandfather yeah. In, introduced me to, um, the director of the Detroit Zoo at the time. Um, and we had a conversation and he sort of really just ignited my passion for pursuing a zoo career when I was roughly a sophomore at Michigan State. And he encouraged me to uh, become a member not only of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is sort of the regulatory body for um, accredited zoo facilities across the country, but he also encouraged me to join the American Association of Zookeepers. So roughly my junior, end of my junior year in college, I became a member of both of those associations, um, which I thought was a very professional thing to do, even though it was early on, um, you know, because I didn't have a job yet. Um, and I also thought that it was a great networking opportunity. Um, so I would say that that was one of the other kind of significant moments um, in jumpstarting my career in zoos. And um, that basically gave me a directory to the accredited facilities across the country, which really helped me when I was um, sort of planning out where I was going to go. And because I grew up you know, moving around a lot. Um, I wasn't afraid to travel and I wasn't afraid to go out and leave, uh, you know, the Michigan area. Um, so I applied basically to every facility across the country. Yeah. Um, that was quite an experiment. And then um, Hogle Zoo in Salt Lake City uh, was the first one that offered me a job. Um, so I didn't figure I was going to stay out here very long. I thought I'd be here a year or so, and then I'd move back towards the Michigan area. And clearly that didn't happen because I've been out here for 21 years. So <laughs> what you're stuck, you're stuck. <laughs> so, so there's that. Yeah. 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 I, you know, so I, I know this is jumping ahead a little bit and I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, listening to you talking about your career. You know, I, I understand the mission of, of zoos in the United States and zoos in Europe and the, all the great conservation stuff they're doing around the world. And, and, you know, I'm living in Southern California now. Friends I'm making, you know, they're telling me, you know, I'd give them my background and some of them are a little liberal and they're like, Oh, you know, zoos are horrible. And I really diligently try to explain what zoos are doing for conservation today. You know, what, how zoos are educating uh, the public today. You know, this is accredited zoos. These are, these are the big ones. You know, the San Diego's, the Hogel Zoo, the Detroit Zoo, you know, on and on and on. Can you just really quickly just kind of talk about the mission of, you know, what zoos are doing for these animals? Yeah, so the conservation aspect um, for facilities across the country, you know, I think we all have the same mission, if you will, for that. Um, everybody has a slightly different spin on it in terms of their mission statement, right? Um, and, you know, a small zoo versus a medium zoo versus a large zoo, they're going to have different ways um, that they can participate in that, whether it's, you know, local or whether it's, you know, out in the field. Um, I think that conservation of uh, wild animals is important. This is my opinion, um, because, you know, they're part of our ecosystem. They're part of living on this planet. And it, it all kind of, for me, it all kind of comes together. So they're important for the landscape. Um, they're important for communities um, over, you know, say in Africa, as an example. Um, they're just an important part of life. And uh, zoos play a role in that in many different ways. So one of the things um, that I was brought up with is a zoo is important because you may live in a city. So this goes all the way back to my mom growing up, right, in Detroit area. Um, you may not see, for example, a cow. So um, there, there's one um, great example of how some zoos still have that, that sort of farm type area or that 
you know, local agricultural area in the zoo um, that allows people to see something as simple as a cow or a goat or a llama so that they can come and maybe see them up close instead of on TV. Or, you know, if they don't have a TV, maybe that's their first chance to see it. Um, so going all the way back that far, I think that they're important for that. I think they're important for um, endangered species so that people have an opportunity. One, it gets people outside. There's the recreation aspect. You know, two, it gets them outside. I mean, there is obviously some sort of um, entertainment aspect. I, I don't always love using that word. Um, it's more of an education aspect, what I would say. So, you know, you're getting that that real life connection instead of watching it on TV. So you're outdoors, you're walking around, you get all the good feels from doing that. And then you're seeing the animal up close and you're looking at the signage and you're watching the, the animal care professionals do their thing. And they're able to talk to you through keeper talks and they're able to give you that conservation message. So that's an important role for zoos. Zoos also play an important role, I think, for, um, you know, being able to help preserve species. So if a zoo has uh, enough room at their facility to hold a bachelor group of a particular species or to um, work as part of SSP on a breeding program for particular species, that's really important work as well. It, it is. And, you know, I... I'm not paid by a zoo, you know, even though San Diego Zoo, I'm, I'm, I'm open to, to work there. But, you know, Angie and I, it, it's one of the things we've done this past year is really try to educate people on what zoos are doing, you know, and aquariums are doing because they do so much for conservation. And, and this is me coming from a research standpoint in academia. So I take a global view and I just look at what Angie did for her PhD project. You know, we were looking at phytoestrogens in southern white rhino rhinoceros diets and the effects on reproduction. And just taking a view at that species and I look at what zoos are doing, conservation centers are doing, and you can apply this to aquariums too for their species. These species won't survive without zoos. I mean, w without the research, without the money that you need. So when you said entertainment... I try to explain to people, zoos need to pay the bills. They they just can't, you know, do this for free. And people are like, oh, put them out in a sanctuary. Who's going to pay for that, right? <laughs> These animals will go extinct if we don't do this work. So a very good answer. Absolutely. Yeah, very good answer. Well, and you just, um, well, one comment that I'd like to make is I appreciate that you're adding into our conversation that it's not just zoos, it's also aquariums. Mm -hmm. um, I think aquariums are um, very much an important part of this, and they are a very important part of the animal care professional and what AZAC does. We we include all people in animal care. Um, but you also just touched a little piece of my heart and my passion for being in this profession because rhinos are my they're, they're this, they're the thing that I'm passionate about, all five species. And, mm -hmm. um, that is my life mission is to, um, you know, do what I can for, for those animals. And that's just me personally. Those, that's my thing. Well, yeah, we just had, uh, we interviewed Dr. Barry Long and he's, he's like a Jane Goodall type in Asia. It's amazing. In the email that he's sending me and Angie back and forth, the species he's working with, he was just in the Philippines and Vietnam. So you said rhinos, and it just made me think of Sumatran rhinos. So they just yep. captured one, right, to bring them into this facility where they can breed them. Yep. And there's, what, 50 left, 55, I think, something like that? Yeah, it's it's pretty dire. Yeah. Sumatran rhinos have dramatically their their population has dramatically declined in the in the last handful of years. Right. And and they're on their way towards extinction. I'll tell you what, mm -hmm. if it wasn't for Cincinnati Zoo and their breeding program, with the Sumatran rhinos, this species, you know, chances are it won't survive. So again, just highlighting the, the, what certain zoos are doing for certain species. Absolutely. They, you know, Cincinnati certainly was um, one of the key players in, um, in sort of jumpstarting that, that reproductive um, program and learning about what it, what it would take to sustain a pregnancy in a Sumatran rhino and what it takes to sustain them just diet wise. Mm -hmm. So they, they've definitely done, um, done a lot, um, for that. And then they have obviously taken that back to the programs in Indonesia. And yeah, yeah. I've, I've been to Indonesia. I've seen, I've been to the sanctuary. 
where I believe that Rhino is going. Um, I've seen uh, some of the things that they're doing over there, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's really cool. And it's very important. Yeah, it is. It's critical, or or they're gone. You know, they're gone if we don't do this work. Exactly. So I guess you know, just just in that same spirit, what species are you working with right now at Hogle Zoo? You know, that for conservation. <laughs> That's an interesting question. So, um, full transparency. Um, I've been at Hogle Zoo for 21 years. I spent my first 10 years as a, well, I started as a relief keeper and I worked with our ambassador animal collection and our hoofstock collection. And then I became uh, a primary keeper in our hoofstock collection. So I worked, um, with everything. I worked with hippos. Um, actually, I did a little bit of, uh, I worked with the penguins. Um, I did giraffes, bison, Bactrian camels, grubby zebra, a um, handful of antelope, uh, bighorn sheep species, fallow deer, lots of different hooved animals. That sort of make, made sense, right, with my um, my sort of equine uh, upbringing. Um, zebras have always been um, one of the animals that I have been interested in as well. And the grubby zebra was very exciting to be able to work with them. So that was my first 10 years at Hogle Zoo. And then I, I moved over to the veterinary side and I became a zoo veterinary technician. So I got to take care of our entire animal collection, um, which which was really pretty amazing um, to take that sort of sidestep um, and learn a little bit more about animals that I didn't know as much about. And then uh, most recently, I uh, am part of our development department. So I'm currently the development coordinator. So um, that that is a, a job move that I just uh, did this year. And I am basically, my, my goal is to take my 20 years of animal experience and my um, sort of my leadership and my experience through AZAC and um, help help put that into tours for VIP and donors and help put that into our fundraising efforts for conservation at Hogle Zoo. Um, and I'm hoping that I have that personal connection and that history at the zoo, both from the, the from the medical side, as well as um, the animal keeping side. And also my, my experience um, in travel to see some of these animals in Africa and Indonesia, sort of blend that all together and offer that as a, you know, a really unique experience for um, some of our, our I'm here listening. I'm like, am I interviewing Angie? Because Michigan, Grevy Zebra, horses, it must be something about Michigan. You guys just love, it's like you guys have the same, and rhinos, same exact interests. She's, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll she, take that. That's the Michigan connection. This would have been a four-hour Spartan connection. It must be. <laughs> this would have been a four-hour interview if I let her interview you. Yes, yeah, because I'm pretty sure it sounds like we could talk about rhinos and horses for days. Yes, yes. Uh, she's going to be jealous. So, yeah, I really want to, you know, touch upon it. And that's really why we brought you on, too, is kind of talk about the American Association of Zookeepers, or AZAC. Mm -hmm. So you're the president, but can you just first kind of talk about the mission of AZAC? Absolutely. So um, the American Association of Zookeepers, the the reason that this association exists is we really want to be able to offer um, advancement in the animal keeping profession. Um, we want to provide, um, you know, sort of that communication or networking opportunity and training for people in the animal keeping profession to um, further develop themselves and also at the same time to promote conservation and help preserve the life of, you know, animals in the wild. So it's a lot about professional development. It's a lot about networking. It's a lot about that keeping that great, you know, excellent communication open across the animal care field in zoos and aquariums. And you're the president, right? So can you just kind of describe what you have to do? I'm sure that's just a lot of work. Well, it is a lot of work, but it's work that I'm happy to to participate in. Um, you know, everyone, uh, well, let me say AAZK has um, very few paid employees. Um, we do have a, a CEO um, and we have someone that helps produce our monthly magazine, the Animal Keepers Forum. Um, we have someone that helps design that magazine. And then everyone else, so that's on the board of directors and that's on our part of our committees and programs, they are all volunteers. So anytime that we put into um, creating this network of resources and and um, really awesome communication practices and planning our annual national
national conference and things like that, it's all volunteer hours. So whether someone's putting two hours a week or 20 hours a week into it, um, it's what we're passionate about. And that's what we, you know, we kind of just like to do. So, um, Okay, so I, I joined AZAC obviously back when I was in college as a, a national association so that I could receive the Animal Keepers Forum, which is our monthly magazine, um, and so that I could open that network um, for for myself going forward in my profession. Um, when I started my job at Hogle Zoo, I joined our local chapter, which is the Utah chapter of AZAC. Um, and I've been a member of that for 20 plus years. And within that, I have um, held officer positions, various officer positions um, to keep the chapter functioning. And um, I've also um, participated in our Bowling for Rhinos program for many years. And I was um, sort of the, the fundraising chair for that. Um, and we can come back and talk about Bowling for Rhinos um, again in a second. But that kind of gave me, I, I started attending, I had the opportunity, thanks to Hogle Zoo, um, to attend the AZAC National Conference um, back in 1998. So I started at the zoo in 97. And I was lucky that next year, so basically within a year, to be able to attend the AZAC National Conference. It was held in Indianapolis in 1998. And um, that just sort of really blew the doors open for me. Um, I met so many amazing people. Uh, I really... It just ignited my passion. And actually, that's what the conference does for a lot of people. Um, so being able to meet those people at that time, I think that sort of led me to where I'm at right now. So um, years later, obviously, I joined the um, AZAC Communication Committee. I was asked um, to come on board, and um, ultimately, I became the chair of that committee. It was sort of a newer committee. And... Um, then I've also been involved with our professional development committee. And then I was nominated for the board of directors. I'm currently in my, I guess I'm, I'm in my final year. <laughs> That's kind of cra yeah. crazy to say. So uh, a term on the board of directors is four years. Um, I actually started um, six months early as an interim board member to fill an empty position. And then I was nominated at that same time and voted in by the membership, um, along with uh, several other open positions on the board that year. Um, and then uh, I've served during my term on the board. I've served as the vice president. And, and then um, I was sworn in as the president um, last year in Washington, D.C., which was really cool to be sworn yeah. in as the president in yeah. Washington, D.C., <laughs> yeah. And, were you at the, were um, at, and it was the golden were you at the anniversary. Capitol building when you did that? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, but wouldn't that have been <laughs> that cool? Would have been awesome. <laughs> um, it was also the, it was also the 50th anniversary for AZAC. So that was, it was a, it was a great year. 20, 2017 being, being at our national conference was really special for me. Um, and then my, my role as president is, you know, I'm here to represent the association. Um, I, am here to communicate um, to the membership and hopefully foster great communication um, within our committees and programs and with the board of directors and with the membership so that um, they know about all their resources and they have the opportunity um, to, you know, grow as professionals. Um, so I'm also, as president, I'm also currently the conference manager. So I'm working with all of our national conference hosts for the next four to five years. Um, and the conference is a big part. It's one of our main resources. Um, so if you're a member of AAZK, a conference is a main resource. The Animal Keepers Forum magazine, which is our, our monthly publication, also a great resource. And of course, the AZAC website. Um, and I really think the conference, you know, going back to my first experience, I think that that's a really important part um, of the association and, and having people have that opportunity to, to join us once a year and just come together and get recharged. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, there's tons of learning and tons of professional development opportunities, but it's about getting recharged. And it's been that way every single time that I've attended it. And yeah, that's one of the things that I love about ASAC. So as president, I'm just here I'm here for the membership. I'm here to represent. Um, I'm here to um, communicate and help help them become uh, better professionals and help the board of directors make decisions that's going to drive the association forward as, you know, everything is progressive. Right. And I think it's important, too, to, you know, for the listeners to understand that you do a lot of sharing, right? You said education. And I know at these conferences, 
A lot of research is shared between zookeepers, you know, how to better take care of these animals and like you said, professional development. So it's very, very important that, you know, zookeepers learn new, new ways to take better care of these animals, right? Absolutely. The conference allows, I mean, we have topics from, you know, conservation boots on the ground at your local facility to conservation in the field. Um, we talk about um, husbandry training. We talk about animal behavior. We talk about nutrition. Um, you know, so we, we offer every year at the conference, we offer three professional certificate courses. Um, and, and those, so for example, coming up in Indianapolis at our conference this uh, next August in 2019, we are offering um, three professional certificate courses. One is going to be in um, advanced marine mammal husbandry. One will be in advanced elephant husbandry. Um, and then uh, we are going to do one in keeper safety. So, that's just, you know, we've done them in animal welfare before. Um, we've done them on reptiles. So that gives them a little bit more. It gives them a 12 hours of dedicated focus on that topic if they choose to sign up for that. Um, and then we have paper sessions, um, posters, and topical workshops. And the workshops give them a little bit more hands-on. They can break out into groups. Um, sometimes there's a panel of people that teach the workshops. So there's a whole variety of learning possibilities at a conference in addition to the great networking and recharging, essentially, that gets done. So I, a big question. How do we tell people that are a little bit like, you know, they go to the zoo and they see the animals and they're like, oh, they look so bored or they just don't understand animal behavior and animal care. This is the big question, I guess, for the whole interview. And it's a tough one. And it's one that we, you know, I struggle with trying to explain to people, you know, that don't understand animal behavior and animal care. How do we explain to people that the animals are well taken care of. They, they are, they are spoiled in essence. And you work hard every day to make sure that they're, and then what we call enrichment. Can you just kind of explain the purpose of that? Sure. Um, I, I like to refer to it as behavioral enrichment. Um, so, and it means probably, of course, I'm not an expert in this field, so it probably means a slightly different thing at each facility. But what we want to do at the zoo is we want to offer the animals in our care the opportunity to act natural. So we want to provide them with a natural habitat as much as we can, especially when we're building new exhibits or um, upgrading a current exhibit. So you want to take into consideration what their surroundings might look like in the wild and sort of provide provide how it might look, how it might smell, how it might feel in terms of substrate. Um, so that's the basic idea is providing them um, the most naturalistic habitat um, that we can in a zoo setting. And then as animal care professionals, when we're doing daily husbandry with the animals, we want to make sure, um, you know, that we're watching their behavior. We're observant. That's a, that's a key part of being an animal keeper, in my opinion, whether you're working in a zoo or aquarium. Um, I think that common sense and, and natural observation ability is very important, um, making sure that you know, are, are you noticing what's their normal, right? Because they do live in a zoo and, and what might be a behavior that you might see in the wild. And that's pretty exciting as well. So observation is a big one. Um, interacting with them through operant conditioning training, which is a positive reinforcement platform, um, where the animal, um, and, and this kind of training is very important for, um, medical, uh, procedures. So I'll take at our zoo, for example, we have an excellent behavioral enrichment program and an excellent operant conditioning training program. And our keepers are able to do um, many uh, different, have the animals participate in many different behaviors so that our veterinary staff can can um, get a good look at them without having to do a, a, a chemical immobilization mm -hmm. on them. So they're trained to open their mouth so we can look at their teeth and their oral health. They're trained to present um, a leg or a paw or a hoof for, you know, checking their nails and making sure that um, the bottom of their feet are healthy. Um they're trained for injections, which means um, if they want to present a hip or a shoulder, um, they can receive routine vaccinations. Um, they can receive medication if they need it um, without us having to add stress by um, anesthetizing them. Um, they can also, in some cases, the keepers can train the animals for uh, blood draw. 
So, for example, an elephant would present um, its ear through a training program, through a training door. There's always a protective barrier um, between an animal keeper and an elephant. They would be trained to present that ear and to accept a blood draw there. And then the, the medical staff, like, say, at our facility, doesn't even... Um, have to participate in that. We can just be present to take the blood sample and then go um, do the lab work part of that. So um, that is another kind of way that we are enriching their life because we're through training, we're able to keep them healthy without having to, um, you know, interact with them very often in that way with a medical mobilization. Um, also, enrichment means providing them with um things that stimulate their natural senses and their five senses. So, you know, a visitor might see a ball in the exhibit, like, uh, you know, whether it's an orange ball or a tan colored ball that matches the color of the exhibit, they might look at that and go, why is that ball in there? Well, the keepers have the opportunity to interact with the public and explain to them that that ball might stimulate, you know, if that's a tiger, um, they might want to throw that in the water and play with that in the water. And then people, maybe they don't realize that tigers like to play in the water. Um, and then that stimulates a whole nother conversation. Um, so it's a play behavior. It's a manipulative behavior. That's just one example. Um, we can provide um, certain smells in the exhibit that are similar to what they might get in the wild, or it's just a smell that they don't normally have in the zoo on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a random new smell, and that will stimulate all their olfactory senses, and that might produce a behavior like rolling or stinky face. That's what I call it when <laughs> cats, you know, cats do that behavior. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And then that's another way that keepers can engage with the public and explain what that looks like. So it's stimulating that animal um, so that they're not just static. Right. So, yeah. And I, you know, it's because I understand the physiology, I understand animal behavior. And a lot of my research was examining stress and I understand stress in animals and, you know, how it affects physiology and looking at behavior. So one of the things I, I know zoos have been doing and, and aquariums to an extent, you know, the last 20 years is a lot of, you know, not only enrichment, but also this, this idea of animal welfare, you know, making sure these animals are well taken care of. Right. I mean, that's been a big push, a big push that, that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. So talking about, you know, this enrichment, you know, one of the things I've been noticing lately or, or I've been reading, I guess, on my Facebook feed is uh, it, it just happens in the last couple of weeks. A lot of large cats. Oh, you know, I forgot the name of one. Boris, I think he was a, he was a uh, jaguar, just passed away at one of the zoos. He lived 20 years like big cats don't live 20 years in the wild. <laughs> so. You know, Correct. can you kind of explain, you know, from your perspective, you've been around these animals for, you know, a long time, kind of their lives under human care versus, say, their life in the wild? Yeah, that's actually, that's a great example. It's a great way to bring up the topic of animal welfare um, because it is a, you know, it's a line that some people, it's it's hard to explain to some people. Um, I do think, and this is a, this is also a great way um, to promote how important zoos are because we do offer that opportunity um, for animals to live longer. So because they're in, um, you know, in a, a facility instead of in the wild, um, they don't have any predators. So right there, we've eliminated a big thing for a lot of animals. Um, so whether they're, you know, their predator normally in the wild, if you're an antelope, your predator is a carnivore or, you know, whether you're a, a rhino and your predator is a human, you know, to talk about the, the poaching crisis that we're having, we've eliminated for that particular animal that particular problem. So we've already, you know, given them good welfare in that sense. Um, but because, and it's kind of goes back to um, the husbandry training that I was talking about a minute ago, um, being able to um, work with these animals and not have to interrupt their life, so to speak, by having to do an immobilization or having to, you know, handle them on any kind of a regular basis because we have those great training programs um, allows us to provide them with medical care that allows them to maybe live out their life a little bit longer. So... That's a great um, point. I mean, I've seen images from Africa and it's like, yeah, we brought it up. I think it was in our lion episode, you know, a few months ago. And I've seen pictures with skin hanging off of a lioness that, you know, during hunt gets injured, broken jaw, broken teeth. 
you look at them, there's just flies all over their faces and, you know, parasites. It's a tough, the wild is a hard, hard place on these animals. Mm-hmm. You know, they're stressed on a day-to-day basis just of, of living, of struggling to live. So, yeah, it's, it's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, some of those, I mean, animals are tough. Mm-hmm. All species are tough. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. They can live through a lot of things that we wouldn't think they can, mm-hmm. um, in the wild. But, but I, I'm happy that we're able to provide that level of care, um, in our facilities that we can, you know, one, recognize through observation that there might be a problem and how bad it is, you know, evaluate. Um, you know, does it need treatment? Can we do it through training? Do we have to do an immobilization? Um, you know, do we have to separate them from their herd mates? Do we have to, you know, evaluate those sort of things? Um, I'm, I'm thankful that we're able to do that and it does, um, help these animals live a longer, healthier life. And then that gives us a longer opportunity, um, or a longer length of time for us to be able to um, interact with the public about them and talk to them, um, you know, about their, their conservation or their particular plight in the wild, um, because we still have them as an example on exhibit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, it also pops into my head. I hear it all the time. You know, why not, you know, first of all, put them in a sanctuary, which sanctuaries, there's very few that can afford any of this. These animals would go away. Uh, if, if we did that Two, just put them in the wild and that's, that's the goal of the zoos. You know, they want these animals in the wild and they want a healthy population in the wild. I always say what wild, you know, one of the things we've been educating people the past year is it's going away. It's, you know, I think we're down to 23% of what it was before the industrial revolution. You know, it. Right. That's a really important point that you brought up is if we don't preserve the habitat and help the communities in those areas, there's nothing to give back to the wild or there's nothing to promote the regrowth of a species in the wild. So that's a really important point. We need to make sure that um, we're educating on that component. You know, that goes back to it's a full circle thing. Um, you know, the, the land use and the resources and then, you know, the communities and the population, all that space, that's all important um, to preserving these species. It is. It is. It is. It is really all right, let's switch gears a little bit. Can you just describe a day in the life of a zookeeper? You know, I don't I don't think we've really covered that on our podcast. Like, you know, I know, you know, how hard you work on a day-to-day basis. But if you can just kind of explain to the listeners that, that haven't worked in zoos before, you know, you get there like 6 a.m. and you're there till 5 p.m. You just kind of explain the day in the life of a zookeeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a full day for sure. Um, I hope that I'm speaking for everyone and saying that, but it's a, it's a full day, whether you arrive at 6am, 7am or 8am, you know, it's a full generally, you know, eight to 12 hour day, depending on your facility, um, and how your, you know, schedules are set up, of course. Um, you know, the first thing that you do is you prepare yourself, you come to work, you make sure you have your keys, you're, you know, you're wearing your uniform, you're wearing the right gear that you need to, to wear, you've got your, um, your form of communication, you know, usually that's a standard um, walkie-talkie radio um, setup so that um, that's part of a safety measure so you can communicate with the rest of your keepers and um, the staff at the zoo. And then you go to your area. Um, and at our facility, what we do is we, you know, we would check check all of your exhibits and your animal, the animals in your collection um, first and make sure that everyone is where they're supposed to be and that everyone, you know, is looking at you bright eyed and bushy tailed um, in the morning and happy, happy to see you because you're going to provide food and, and interaction with them on some level. Um, and then you, you sort of systematically uh, go about your day and your day will consist of um, obviously uh, taking care of the exhibit, which means cleaning up after the animals, um, setting up their enrichment for the day, um, making sure, you know, doing a, a safety check of the perimeter and a safety check of the interior um, to make sure that, you know, there hasn't been any weather damage overnight or, you know, maybe maybe the tiger um, exposed a corner of something in their exhibit by digging that um, might not be safe and you have to have someone come in and look at it before you put the tigers back out for the day. Um, 
So you basically take care of the exhibit and, and then uh, you take care of the animal. And the animal consists of, you know, making sure, again, that they you're you know using your observation skills they look they look healthy for the day um they're eating their diet they're acting normally um the other things that you have to plan into your day obviously based on each facility is what time do you have to have the animal shifted um in and out or side to side or you know rotated for different collections so that you know the public can um enjoy them and does have the opportunity to learn about them and see them Okay, so all, the timeline of your day is very important um, in terms of not only what you have to do and what's important to the animals, but what's also important to um, your guests that are coming to the zoo. Um, so another thing that you have to think about is, are you, um, is part of your day interacting with the public? A lot of facilities have their keepers scheduled at different times to be out either in the exhibit, if it's a safe thing to do, um, or um in front of the exhibit, if you will, interacting with the public, talking about conservation, talking about the individual animals at the zoo. Um, that's something that you have to factor in. You also have to factor in um, your uh, training sessions for the day, whether that happens as a group training session with a variety of animals or multiple keepers for that matter, or if it's a one-on-one -on -one session, if the animal has to be shifted, if different groups have to be rotated, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, do you change out your enrichment multiple times a day? Again, that factors into your shifting strategy. And then prepping for the next day is also an important part. A lot of times diets have to be thought out um, for the next day or next successive days, or um, diets have to be prepped or they have to be sorted in your commissary area, which is um, where a lot of facilities have their main food storage. Um, there's also taking out the garbage. That's part of it. Um, making sure that you're you know, um, keeping your, your area clean and um, keeping the flow of the rest of the zoo. You know, there's a lot of other parts of the zoo, like your grounds crew and your, your housekeeping staff and your education staff, and they all kind of fit together in this big puzzle. Um, and everybody does kind of have this ripple effect of collaboration during the day. So that's, that's kind of a snapshot, I would think. No, it, it, it's busy. I mean, it is busy. I, ah, zookeepers work so hard. You work so hard on a day-to-day -day basis and you do it because you love them. You love these animals and you really believe in what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's also things, you know, just popping into my head, like what if there's a giant hay delivery that day? Um, you know, that that's like all hands on deck. That's like the entire keeper staff, or if you're available, obviously, um, as many people as possible go over and unload sometimes three semi loads of hay because that's something that has to be done or um, unloading a, a semi full of, um, you know, frozen food products, whether it be rodents or, or meat or... Um, you know, bones or fish, those things uh, also happen. They have to take place, uh, you know. So no, Yeah, like it that. is. It is. It's a lot of work. So I, yeah, here's a fun question. Do you have any like funny animal stories or some of your favorite animal stories that you could share with the listeners? Um, I was, I, I was trying to think of this. So I, one of my favorite just memories of, um, working with the grubby zebra, going back to mm -hmm. zebras, um, so I had uh, two younger male grubby zebras brothers that lived together and um, they, they got, got along famously. And one of the things that they love to do, and it always made my day if I could catch them in the act. Right. So we had these giant black heavy duty rubber food tubs. And um, we would of course put their, put their feet in that at some point during the day and then ship them outside and they would immediately go out and flip them over because you know, that's just, <laughs> yeah. that's just what yes. they did. But they loved, the reason they did that is because they loved to play with those tubs and they wouldn't just pick them up by the regular edge of the tub. They'd flip it over and pick it up by the bottom edge, which that sturdy black rubber tub, that's real hard to do. And they would pick it up and just, just run around the exhibit. The two of them like, you know, playing tag with it. And we had to replace those tubs so often um, that it basically became an enrichment item for them um, when it wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be, you know, a way to deliver their feed. So anyway, that is one of, I, I love that memory. I love, uh, I love taking care of those boys. And uh, that just made my day every time I could actually catch them in the act. I have one photograph. Of oh that, gosh. And it's not a great one, but I know what they're yeah. doing. So yeah. Um, like I said, so that's that's a good. I was going to say, like I said, if, if if Angie was doing this interview, you, it would be four hours later <laughs> talking about Grammy zebras. <laughs> oh. Awesome. So you know, I got a last a couple more questions it, before I let you go. Okay. 
this is always the big one. And, you know, debating people, you know, around the world and going, you know, why, why save these animals? Why care about endangered species? Just let it, nature's take its course. I lived in New Zealand for seven months and there's a big fight down there with people that are, you know, cause down there in New Zealand, and, and I bring this up because it, there's been some articles coming up where people that are working in conservation are, are fearful for their lives because these really extremists are targeting them for intimidation and death threats, things like that, because they're trying to kill off all these rodents, invasive species that are killing kiwis and, and native wildlife. So there's people out there that are like, oh, just let things go extinct. From your perspective, why should we convince people that saving endangered species is worth the time, money, and effort? Whew, that's a heavy question. It is. Um, it is. It's a big one. So, And I, I want to think that it's, it's going to be fairly easy for me to answer. Um, let me see if I can articulate this. So I... I think that all species are important and I think that all species have a way of being managed so that we can all get along. So, and by managed, I mean, how can we educate ourselves and how can we educate other people on why that's important? So, um, it goes back to me talking about habitat, I think as well. If, they're very important animals, just like humans, we have an impact on our surroundings. So we have an impact on, you know, the air and the water and the land and the plants and, you know, the tiny species all the way up to the big species. We all impact each other. And I think that I, I think it's important for us to find that balance where humans and animals of all types can live on a landscape that can sustain all of us. That's a way to say it. And that's so hard. And I, I don't know that we've found the magical formula for that yet. But I do know that zookeepers play an important role in it, both at our facilities and in the wild. And not just zookeepers, uh, animal care professionals, people that are passionate about all kinds of animals. And, you know, whether that's the farmer or the, you know, the small child that's taking care of, uh, you know, a classroom um, uh, guinea pig, for example, or, you know, whether it's your, your pets that you have at home or et cetera. I think that we, we all play an important role and we're all working, hopefully, towards finding the answer to finding that balance. It, it's amazing because, you know, every interview we do, or, you know, I know at least I do, and, and, and I encourage Angie to ask that question. I get so many different perspectives and from the hardcore scientists that, you know, down in New Zealand that are studying kiwi or blue whales to Dr. Barry Long, who's off in Indonesia, you know, saving Sumatra rhinos, uh, to here in the United States where you have animals under human care that are you, you are working hard to preserve. So, it's amazing to get your perspective, uh, you know, Bethany, last question. How can we help? How can the listeners help? What can they do to, to not only help uh, Azac or support zookeepers and what they do? Um, you know, how do we support you in your efforts? Okay. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I kind of want to, let me just jump back just a little bit to what we were just talking about. I can't imagine the word extinct. I can't, that just doesn't exist in my kind of repertoire. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like, I can't imagine if I didn't have my pets here at home. I can't imagine a world without rhinos. I can't imagine a world without elephants. I can't imagine a world without the vaquita porpoise. I can't, I mean, we certainly have species that are extinct, but I don't want that to happen under my watch. Mm -hmm. So I think what people can do is they can, um, they can get more involved by, by, you know, going to their local facility, whether it's an aquarium or a zoo or a wildlife rehab center or, you know, whatever it may be, I think go there, visit these places, interact with the animal care staff, take a minute to actually read the signage, take a minute to spend some time just sitting and looking at those surroundings and imagining what that would look like in the wild, because you may not ever get the opportunity to travel to those places and this is, you know, this is what we can provide to you is that extension of learning. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, the next thing is if you're more interested in the American Association of Zookeepers, um, 
I'll speak to people that are thinking about their up and coming profession, maybe students or people that currently volunteer at animal facilities. Um, AZAC does have opportunities for membership uh, for students and for affiliate members. And of course, if you are a professional um, animal care um, person at an aquarium or a zoo, we also have professional memberships. So um, you can join AZAC and it's going to provide you those resources, that great opportunity for networking and communication and um, professional development. You, uh, I encourage you to attend um, an AZAC national conference, if possible, um, whatever level of membership you're at, whether it's professional affiliate or student, um, I, I would encourage you, you're also going to get our monthly publication. If you're a member, um, our website is a plethora of resources. So the website is aazk.org. Um, we also didn't really talk about our bowling for rhinos program. Oh yeah. Bring that up. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing one. Um, and also, I should mention social media. So you can follow the American Association of Zookeepers on social media. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Um, and uh, that will also link you to a lot of our conservation partners as well. So the Bowling for Rhinos program is sort of our flagship conservation program. This is a big one to bring up. And I'm I'm surprised that it didn't actually come up in our rhino conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've been doing Bowling for Rhinos um it was started by a small group of zookeepers um, just over 25 years ago, and um, it was a way for them to come together and create a fundraiser um, for these amazing species. And um, it has grown into a more than $7 million um, fundraiser for us. So we've been able to give back 100% of our proceeds over the years um, to to a total, an amazing total of over $7 million. Um, and that helps... Um, that helps with conservation for rhinos, both in Africa and in Indonesia. So that's a really um, important thing to us. That's why the rhino is part of our logo. Um, and when you're protecting rhinos, the thing to think about is you're also protecting a multitude of other species, as well as the environment, as well as the communities that those animals live in. So it's not just about rhinos, but rhinos happen to be the flagship species and happen to be, um, you know, what we have been passionate for years and years. But I mean, you're helping cheetahs, you're helping elephants, you're helping giraffes um, over in Indonesia, you're helping primate species, you're helping, you know, reptiles and amphibians and insects, all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's a really important program and you can get in, people can get involved with Bowling for Rhinos. They can find out more on the AZAC website, but they could also find out if there's a local chapter of AZAC in their area and they can attend their annual Bowling for Rhinos event. It's a fun family night out. Um, it, you know, there's, there's just lots to learn about rhinos when you go. Um, there's always some sort of conservation education message because we can't help ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just a, it's a really fun time. And if you're looking for something, this is, you know, it's, it's great, um, to think about starting off the new year as well. You know, what, what can you do for conservation? This is a local thing that you can do that makes a global impact. It does. It does. And I've taken my boys uh, every year. I know Angie does. It's a fun event. Uh, always have fun at that. And I'll make sure to put all these links on our website so folks can go there and learn more about your organization and, you know, Bowling for Rhinos and things like that. Bethany Bingham from the Hogel Zoo there in Salt Lake City, Utah. I hope you're staying warm. <laughs> <laughs> this time of year? Yeah, we, we're we actually having a little bit of a snowstorm right now, oh. so that's par for the course. Yeah. And here I am in you know sunny Southern California, 70 degrees out. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, the snow's pretty. Yes. Thank absolutely. you so much for your time. And, and again, thank you for what you do. It's, it's an inspiration to me. I know it's an inspiration to Angie and a lot of our listeners that, you know, you are a big part of conservation. It's not just the folks in the field. It's, well, and you, you've been to Indonesia, you know, thanks for sharing that. So, you know, you do a critical piece. Everybody in this big wheel of conservation uh, does a big, big part of it. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. And next time, yeah, next time I'll have Angie interview you and it'll be like a five hour interview. <laughs> I, I would actually love that. I look forward to it. Okay. It's great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You too.